All right, if you're joining us, you're here. We're uh, taking our Bibles this morning. We're going to go over to 2 Samuel. We're actually moving out of 1 Samuel, and then we'll get into the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 51 this morning. Stace, is the candle monitor on? Thanks. Uh, we're we're going to look this morning... Uh, at probably one of the most infamous psalms in Psalm 51. Uh, and it's unfortunately one of the best-known Bible stories uh, throughout the entire world. I, uh, as I was uh, just studying and thinking about it, uh, you know, we look at Psalm 51, which we will get to. Uh, for those of you who, most, most everyone here has been with us, but uh, teens, your first time or second time with us in this quarter. Uh, we look at the history behind some of these psalms that we know for sure, and then we look at what, uh, what caused the psalmist to write the psalm. So we're going to do a little bit of the historical study this morning of Psalm 51, and then we will get into the psalm itself proper. I was uh, thinking about it. 29 years ago this year, Pete Rose, one of, the, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, that I don't think that is disputable. It's baseball season. We're getting into that, that time, you know, spring training starting, and you know, we're already already seeing some of that happen. <clears throat> but he became really one of the most infamous names of baseball when he got caught for gambling and, and uh, using and potentially throwing games and all those different things that come out, come about with the, the story. What's very interesting is when you actually watch the, like, because I enjoy baseball and I follow some of the different things. One of the, one of the markets that happens in baseball is autographs and it, it's very popular. Pete Rose is still one of the, even though he's flooded the market with his autographs, he's still one of the most sought-after autographs in the, in the baseball, baseball world. People want to, to meet this guy or get his autograph. And it, it's interesting to me to see somebody who is both despised and honored in, in the baseball world. Somebody who has, even in, in, as far as the game, somebody who has done so many good things and honored the game of baseball with the way he played. I mean, he was known, Charlie Hustle, the guy who just, he would literally dive head first, didn't care what it was going to do to his body. He was intense the whole time he played. And yet, he's somebody who's completely dishonored the game to the point that he's a divisive individual in the, in the, the realm of those who follow baseball. And even for those who don't care about baseball, it's just like, oh, we hate that guy. He gambled and cheated. So he is a, is a very divisive name. And as I was thinking about it, and I was reading an article this week on it, and it was just reminding me about the story of David. In this, this account, David is an individual who has greatly honored God, who has greatly honored God. He's an individual who is loved by, by many and loved by even today, believers today, look at the life of David and we say, wow, there is a guy who I want to be like. And yet, in the midst of this man's life, there comes a point where he completely dishonors himself, others, and God. To the point that even today, it causes difficulties. It causes struggles when we start talking to people, even about the gospel. The, the ideas of David and Bathsheba arise. And so we, we look at today, we look at David and Bathsheba, Second Samuel chapter 11. Uh, if you're not there, that's where we're, we're going to start this morning. 2 Samuel, I just told you 2 Samuel, so we'll go to chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we have the account of David and Bathsheba. As I mentioned, one of the most infamous stories in the Bible. And David is going to find himself sliding down the slippery slope of sin into the depths of depravity that, that most of us would probably look in our lives and say, well, we'll probably never get to the point 
that David got. I would probably argue the fact that David probably never thought he would get to the point that he got to. We all have that potential, and we, we often throw, throw the phrase, but by the grace of God, there go I. And, and I hope that doesn't become a trite phrase for us, but there's one that we look at and say, hey, there is great truth that God's grace and God's mercy and his long suffering and his kindness to me protects me uh, from the difficulties of life that, that, I, that I face and the potential of sin. But we also see on the, on the, the downside, we also see the, the upside to what David has struggled with and how he, he rises and how he works through this difficult time of sin in his life and unconfessed sin to get to the point where he's still called that man after God's own heart, which it completely baffles me. And yet at the same time, I'm thankful for that hope and the grace that the Bible offers in, in the case of David and Bathsheba, or specifically in the, in the life of David. So how did David end up sliding down this path of sin? Let's look at the, let's look at the historical context, what happened, and then let's look at the psalm and, and really get in-depth into the person, into the mind of, uh, of where David, David was at. We, uh, we see that David first placed himself in a position that was not good for him. Here in chapter 11 there, it says, And it came to pass that the year, uh, when, after the year was expired, at the time when kings went forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants and all of Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon, besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still in Jerusalem. And it came to pass in the evening tide, the day, eventide, or when David woke up in the middle of the night, he arose off his bed, walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And the one said, and one said Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her and came in unto him, and he lay with her, and she was purified for, un, for she was purified for her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, "I am with child." So in these, these four verses, we see that David saw, he inquired, and then he yielded to the, to the temptation. It follows after the pattern of James even. You, you start to look and you lost that and you go after the desires of your heart. And when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. So it's, it's this constant, he saw, he inquired, he yielded. And that's, David, that's how David placed himself in a position that was not, that was not good for him. It wasn't, it wasn't simply that David happened out onto the roof and he looked down and he saw this woman and, and instantly he sinned. No, that was, that was the temptation to sin. But when he allowed that, that desire, that lust to conceive, now he is bringing in the aspects of yielding to that temptation, inquiring after. He's, he's pushing it further and further toward that, toward that spot. One of the things that often comes up, questions that arise in, in this initial part of the story, is why did David, why was David not with his army? I mean, it says right in verse 1, it's a time when kings go forth to battle. So is that David's first problem is he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing? I think there's some potential, potential there to, to really focus on that a little bit. But one of the things, I, I don't think you build the doctrine off of that. You don't build the truth off of the fact that David was in Jerusalem and he should have been out in battle because that's what the kings always did. Because that is not completely true. 
In fact, if you look in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 7, David sends out Joab and his army. He stays in Jerusalem. They go out and they, they fight the battle and then they report back to David. Again, in 2 Samuel 21, as David's getting a little bit older in life, he wants to go forward and his men are saying, no, king, you stay here, stay safe. We will do your fighting for you. We will come back and we will fight for you. So to look and dogmatically say all the time the kings would always go out with their troops and David didn't go out, so therefore David was wrong. I don't think we can 100% say that. But under inspiration, the Bible does tip its hat toward the idea that, hey, uh, David, you, you found yourself in this situation partly because you probably should have been out with, with your group there. Another one that comes up, questions that come up often is, well, why was Bathsheba? It's her fault. She placed herself in a way that allured David. The text does not indicate that she was trying to entice, that she was trying to do anything. In fact, she was going through a ceremonial ritual to, to clean herself, to make herself pure again. She was doing it. And in fact, you remember, it says that David woke up in the evening tide. He rose off his bed. David was already asleep. So Bathsheba wasn't doing it at a time when people are normally uh, up and around. She was, it was later at night. She went out. She, uh, she was bathing in a situation. Well, how did David find that? Bathsheba obviously would have put herself in a position. But remember, David's, David, what is historically thought of as David's house, the, the castle where he would have been, so to speak, he would have been at one of the highest points in the city, able to look down the way Jerusalem is laid out. He would have been able to look down and see much of the city. As well, the customs of the, of the time, people would go out, and, and ladies would, in their courtyards. There would often be courtyards or places on their roof where they would go in privacy and they would bathe. So it, it's not Bathsheba looking to entice David, although we, we don't see any hesitancy from her. When is it inquired? And the question then is, well, did she not hesitate because it's the king's order, say, come to me? Or was it, you know, she knew what was going to happen? We don't know. Bible doesn't give us indication. And that's not where the Bible and God is trying to park at. The Bible is trying to get us to, to look and to understand, here is David, who he saw something, he inquired, he pushed himself further, and then he yielded to temptation. In fact, as we get into Psalm 51, we have to understand that David, he doesn't talk about, except for the psalm title and one phrase where he talks about blood guiltiness, he's just talking about sin and his struggle with sin. And, and my fear is that we can look at something like Psalm 51 and go, okay, that's just the passage for the adulterers. That's just the passage for the murderers. But David's going to look and say, when we have sin in our lives, we have to look at how this impacts God, how this impacts others, and our relationship and our fellowship with God. So David placed himself in a position that was not good. David did not listen to the warnings placed before him. It's, it's really interesting. And they're just, I would say they're divine warnings even before he would understand. It's not, not anybody looking and saying, David, don't do this. But rather, there, there are some things. Uriah, his name means Jehovah is my light. He is the one who directs our path. Wait, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. The one who God is, God is directing the path. Are you, David, allowing your path to be directed by God? Or are you, you know, are you following after? Uh, I think just this simple statement, the wife of Uriah. It's like, uh, David, uh, that should give you a, a clue. She's not your wife. She's his wife. She's married. That, that's placed right in front of him to say, hey, this, this would be wrong. And, and so he, he looks, at, looks at that. It's, it's interesting to me, 
if you do, do a quick study on, on the individuals that are present here, if you look at verse 3, it says, The daughter, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. If you look over in, uh, it's chapter 23, if, if you want to flip over there, David's mighty men, his, 30, his 37 guys in total, are given. And so you have, you have two guys that are mentioned here. Down in, down in verse 34, you have Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. So you have Eliam mentioned, and then you have verse 39, Uriah the Hittite. These are, these are his men that he has been close to. These are the men that he has been fighting alongside of. Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam who married another one of his mighty men, Uriah. And so it's, it's not as if he's not aware of who this lady is. He's not, he's, he understands. And yet in the power of temptation, in the power of his desires, he yields, he gives in. And I think we can all say we've been there. Maybe not in the situation of adultery. But have you found the power and the draw of temptation so strong that you find yourself giving in even when you don't want to? Paul highlights that. Paul talks about there are are times that I want to live for God and yet my flesh, it pulls me. And I want to give in. Maybe you're here today and you're going to look and say, you know what, Art? Nope, I don't struggle with that at all. I I have temptation and the flesh completely figured out. God bless you. Please let me know how you did it. Because we're going to, to struggle with that, though we can, keep, can continue to drive toward, toward holiness. What else does David do? David attempts to cover up his sin and shame. And this is the next part, and we're very familiar, and I'm going to rest on your familiarity with this, this account in this story. Where what does he do? He brings Uriah home from battle. After he brings Uriah home from battle, he's trying to get her, him to go home with Bathsheba and be intimate. And yet... In the midst of that, he has more integrity at this moment than, than David himself does. He looks and says, no, I'm not going to go. How can I go and enjoy the comforts of my home and the, the warmth of my wife when my, my fellow men are out there on the battlefield, sleeping in the ground, struggling and going through the difficulties? And he says, I won't do it. So David gets Uriah drunk. He sits down, he drinks with them, and he gets to the point where he's got Uriah beyond being sober. And yet in his drunken state, Uriah still demonstrates that integrity and says, I'm not going to do it. So he ends up sending Uriah with his own death sentence out to Joab by, by his hand. It goes by his hand. He gives it to Joab and Uriah is then going to be put to death. He's going to die there. And then David is going to take uh, Bathsheba as his wife in the attempt to cover up the sin because now she's legally my wife. And if she's my wife, then she can obviously have our child and nobody will be the wiser and we can, we can figure it out. So David, in all of his human wisdom, works to cover up his sins, to, to try and wrestle through it so that nobody, nobody, is, nobody is aware and then there's this man called Nathan the prophet. Nathan shows up and works one of the, the most classic of parables. Where he starts to talk to David and says, Hey, there's somebody in your, your kingdom, they had one sheep. And there's this other guy, he had all this stuff. And he went and he stole the one sheep. And he took it away. And David's getting furious. Like, how dare that individual steal a sheep? And then he looks at, he looks at him, I can just picture with that bony little finger looking at him and going, You're the man. You're the one who did it. With You stole Uriah's one lamb. You took, you had all of this, David, and yet you love it, lusted and coveted and yielded to temptation, and you took that. 
And God saw that. And God is going to deal with you. In fact, he deals with David's unconfessed sin here. He, he says your, your unconfessed sin, that this, this sin that you've fallen into, it's going to have consequences. What were some of those consequences? If you look down in verse 11 and, and following, he says, uh, and said to you, uh, yeah, Uriah the Hittite. Uh, sorry, nope. That's not the right verse. Chapter 12. Sorry, I was looking in verse 11. Sorry. Chapter 12. Uh, Behold, I will raise up an evil against thee out of your own house. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with the wives in the sight of the son. For the things that you did in secret, I will do before all of Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So he's going to confess. He's going to show sorrow. But what happens? He says, the sword is not going to depart from your house. You, you're, you're going to have, your sons are going to die, is what it ends up being, and die early. So this unnamed son we know is going to die. The one uh, that isn't, the son of David and Bathsheba, the first son, is going to die. That happens in chapter 12, verse 18. His son Amnon is going to, after the rape of Tamar, he rapes his step, stepdaughter Tamar, and then the whole process of the revenge, and, and Amnon is going to be put to death. He gets put to death. Absalom, his other son, is, is going to revolt against David, and then eventually Absalom is going to be put to death. Adonijah, you can find in 1 Kings chapter 2, he's going to experience a premature death. So this, this death that David handed out on behalf of Uriah is now this sword, this sword is going to come back upon his house and he's going to watch his sons many of his sons be put to death and and see that happen so so david experiences that consequence even though remember verse 13 he repents he says i was wrong but there are still consequences that continue he also he says that things that were done in secret they're going to be done before all of Israel. We're not going to get into all of this, but we have this fulfilled by Absalom. When Absalom revolts, they set up on top of the top of the uh, the house there for all of Jerusalem to see a tent, and Absalom is going into David's concubines. And people are, and that was a historical aspect where you would, as a king, if you would overtake, you would take the, that king's concubines to show that you were in control of everything. And so in the midst of Absalom's revolt, he's going to take in David's concubines and he's going to lay with them. And all of Israel is going to see that thing that David secretly did with Bathsheba. They're going to be well aware of it being done against David to the multiple concubines through, through Absalom. So that is the things done in secret. And then I think one of, the, one of the tragic things is it's going to give your enemies the opportunity, the occasion to blaspheme, to blaspheme the Lord. And that we see that that happens, that the people are going to know that those things you did in secret, it's going to be known to everybody. And it, it gives that opportunity to this day. We see people blaspheming God and laughing and scoffing at the idea of here's the man after God's own heart and look what he did. Oh, that must be okay. We have to be cautious on that. And we have to be wise and understand that, that sin does have lasting effects. I think all too often we look and say, well, sin doesn't impact the way that, that we think it would. And we look and say, well, this is such a big sin. I mean, we're talking adultery and murder here. And we would never commit adultery and murder. Right? I mean, fair, I think. But remember the words of Jesus. Doesn't he say, if you're committing lust in your own heart, you're committing adultery. If you are hating a brother... You, you despise them. You, you want to just look at them and 
just you, that anger that you have, you're committing murder. Jesus talks about the heart. And I think too often we dismiss because we look at externals. We look at the things that are done, and we don't look at our heart sometimes. And God is going to look at the heart, look at the sinful choices that we are making, and look and say, hey, wait, are we given occasion for the name of the Lord to be blasphemed by our heart attitudes, by our sinful choices. So David is going to respond. And we see that verse 13. It's just short here. He says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And David said unto the Lord, thou are the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David responded the way that we ought to immediately, correctly, and personally. He doesn't look and say, oh, well, you know, Bathsheba, she was. If Uriah would have went in and been faithful to his wife, you know, I would have been okay and I'd have been off. The-. He doesn't try to dismiss. He looks and says, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, Psalm 51 is going to expand his repentance. It's not just a mea culpa. We live in a, we live in a society of mea culpas where it's just like, oh, yeah, I texted that out. I tweeted that out. And yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. And then all of a sudden the person's doing it again. And they just say, I'm sorry, because at that moment they feel bad about it. But David is going to respond. Now realize, according to the law, he has a death sentence. According to the Jewish law, he is to die because of adultery. And he is to die because he shed innocent blood. He murdered somebody. He is to die. And yet his response, though we just have that quick one in Second Samuel, his response on behalf of God, God looks and says, I will not enact that death sentence that you deserve. So what was it about the way David said, I'm sorry, that allowed him to escape the, escape the death penalty? Um, yeah, that's why this is, this is interesting to me because, I mean, maybe you've heard it. The God of the Old Testament is just a God of vindictiveness and a God of just wrath and justice. And he's one who just wants to zap people for breaking the law. But the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy and a God of love. Remember, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe this story beautifully pictures the grace and the mercy and the long suffering of our God. It shows in the the life of David that God is just and yet God is merciful and kind and loving. So it's, it's not a two, two gods for one half of the Bible, one half of the Bible. God is the same. And his mercy and his kindness and his love demonstrated on both halves. So what are some practical tips? As we look at dealing with sin and we look at what happened with David, we're going to keep pulling them out as we go through the passage. Put yourself in a place to succeed spiritually. You're doing that in some ways. You're putting yourself here. You're getting under the the teaching of God's word. You're spending time worshiping. But not just on Sunday. What about the rest of the week? You know, maybe you're struggling with certain temptations and you need to avoid going in those directions. Maybe you need to to stop, you know. So so I have a temptation. It's called McDonald's. I love McDonald's. I know it's not good for me. And believe me, I can tell you all the reasons it's not good. But I still love it. And I remember a couple years back, the way I would come to church to work every day, it was right by McDonald's. And my, my great passionate self-control, I, I couldn't but stop and pull in and grab an Egg McMuffin on the way in. And Egg McMuffins tend to sit and keep going and going and going. So I just had to look and say, wait, I've got to take a different way to work. Well, in order to take a different way to work, it's going to take me five more minutes to get to work. I don't want to take five more minutes, but it was the best thing for me. 
to stop going. I had to change my path. I had to change up something. I had to put myself in a place to succeed physically, but I need to do the same thing spiritually. Do you put yourself in, into God's word on a, on a consistent daily basis? Do you put yourself on your knees before God on a consistent daily basis? Do you find yourself around friends who are going to encourage and build you up and put you in a situation where they're going to help you to succeed? Or do you find yourself uh, sinking to the lowest common denominator because you don't want to feel guilty or you don't want to talk to friends about the difficulties, the issues that are arising in your life? Put yourself and your family in a position to su- succeed spiritually. Wow. That was a struggle to say. (laughs) Number two, put yourself around people who will help you succeed spiritually. David, David was around individuals, but he found himself isolated. He found himself doing it on his own. The struggles that he had, and, and I understand not everybody likes to share their battles and their struggles, but do you have one or two people that you can go talk to that you can ask for help when you're facing the temptation when you're facing the struggle. Number three, listen to the warnings of God. The names of those individuals, the individuals that he was around on a consistent basis, did he listen to them? Did he, did he seek their advice and the warnings of God? When God starts putting up flags in your life and, and using the Holy Spirit to convict you and to challenge you, do you listen to those warnings? Do you listen to those struggles that are there? Number four, when you fall, confess. Rather than compounding your sin by covering up your sin. Teens, this is what we started talking about Wednesday night. As we were going, we're going through different basic doctrines and we started talking about sin and battling with it. You do the crime, you do the time, you deal with it. Do not compound it by continually trying to cover up, to lie, to manipulate, to try and fix the situation in your own wisdom. Deal with it with God. Get right with him. Get right with others. And then move forward and say, I'm going to work at not doing this again. Number five, develop an an understanding of the impact your sin has upon others. We dismiss this. It's my sin. It's my life. It's my choice. It really doesn't have a whole lot of impact on other individuals. It does. And we need to recognize that my lies, that my cheating, that my dishonesty on taxes, that my greed that my lust, that my pride, all of those dynamics have impact on my family, on my neighbors, on my community, my body of believers that I'm with. I need to understand that you and I have a, have a relationship that as I, as I live, righteously or unrighteously, it has impact upon you and vice versa. To be able to look and say we are a holy body of believers. We're not a perfect body of believers. But we are individuals who are looking to say, I need to continue to try and attempt to live righteously so that my testimony does not give the enemies of God occasion to blaspheme. It has happened two times that I I can specifically remember that I am witnessing to somebody in the community and they say, wait a second, that's where so-and-so goes. And if that's where so-and-so goes, I want nothing to do with your God. And it was directly related to unholy living of an individual in this church. It happens. I mean, our community our is not vast beyond, you know, immeasurable, innumerable people. We have a responsibility not to give people the occasion to blaspheme God. So that is where Psalm 51 picks up. So let's jump over to Psalm 51. I, I completely feel, Spurgeon, Spurgeon said in his 
his writings on the Psalms, he said, I, do, I did not want to write on Psalm 51. And said he, he said he put it away, and then he would come back to it, and he would put it away. He said it's so vast and so deep that he did not even feel worthy to talk and to write about it. And he, he talks about the struggle of, of going through Psalm 51. And so as we look at Psalm 51, we're not going to get through every single dynamic and aspect of it, of it this evening or morning, even though it's just 19 verses. There's too much. But let's look at some of the truths that we see here. When we fall into sin, and we will, what is our response going to be? What was David's response dealing with his repentance? His repentance, we see, first of all, was very personal. It was very personal. If you look at the, throughout the psalm in those 19 verses, 29 different times, me, my, mine, I. He did not look through this psalm and say, this is what you need to do. This is your struggle. He is looking personally and saying, this is me. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You can go right through it and highlight the personal nature of this psalm. I believe almost more than any other of David's psalms, quantity-wise, you see that it was personal. Not only was it personal, we see that his repentance was dependent upon God. He didn't look and say, okay, God, I'll fix it and I'll make it right and I'll I'll know how this, this all works. I'll figure out the situation and you just put your little stamp of approval on it. And I'll just, I'll figure it out in my wisdom. He says, Lord, you have mercy. Show your loving kindness, your tenderness towards me. Because right now, I know the law. And I know what I deserve. I deserve God to be put to death. And David is looking and saying, my forgiveness is completely dependent upon you. I give this to you. It is my sin before you. And that's what he says. It was dependent upon God because it was against God. Now, some people will argue, and, and scholars will argue, well, see, that's a problem with the scripture because he sinned against Uriah, and he sinned against Bathsheba, and he sinned against Joab because he made Joab do this, and, and he sinned against all the people of Israel. Um, but David, David's looking at the bigger picture of sin right now. He's not just looking at a specific, he's looking at sin, and he's saying, my sin is against you. Sure, sure, if I'm, if I'm David, I look and say, sure, God, yes, I sinned against Bathsheba. I sinned against Uriah. <clears throat> I sinned against Eliam because I, I defiled his daughter. He can go right down the list. <clears throat> but he looks and he says, my sin is against you, God. Excuse me. He, uh, he looks and says, that's, that's where my sin lies. It lies at your feet. When you lie, when you cheat, when you steal. When you curse, when my pride increases, when my lust arises, when my greed and, and it gets me to the point where I will cheat on taxes or I will, I will rip somebody off in a business deal. That sin is not just against them. That sin is me violating against a holy God who has told me not to live that way, not to act that way. And I truly believe this is one of the, the, the true degradations in the American church is that we've become very passive on sin. We've got to the point where we look and say, well, it's not that bad. I only, it really didn't hurt anybody. And yet David takes a step back and says, wait, you've got the wrong perspective on sin. Sin is against God. It is a violation of God's standard, of God's, of God's law, and I need to be right with him 
first and foremost. So David looked, and I have some uh, 6.1, because depending on what your notes, your notes might say 6, but it's number 1. It, all the notes are, that was my fault, on the, uh, the practical tips for overcoming sin here. I don't know what, if you have 6s or 1s in your notes. Some of you have different ones. So it's either 6 or 1. Realize that this is a spiritual battle, and you need God's help. When you're looking at practical tips, it is not just me versus the sin. This is, a, this is something where I need, God, I need your strength. My flesh desires this sin. My flesh wants to go this way, God. It does. And yet I need your help to say no. To yield to you and not to yield to my flesh. I want to, on a consistent daily basis, yield to my flesh. God, I need to yield to you because if I sin, it's against you. He looks and says, we need to take responsibility for our sin. Don't get in the habit of blaming other people for your sin. Take personal responsibility and look and say, this is, this is me. For I acknowledge, I have this mental assent, I know, God, that these are my transgressions and my sins are ever before you. They're being laid at your feet. Christ is looking and saying, yes, I died for that one. Yes, I died for that one. Yes, I died for that one. But God is aware of our sin. We have a responsibility to be aware, to take responsibility, to confess it, and and to move forward. We need to understand that God sees our sin. We we, We know that God sees all things, that he is El Roy, the God who sees. We know that he is aware and that our sins will find us out. And yet, in our human wisdom, in our human rationale, in our fleshly perspectives, we tend to look and say, well, no one else knows. So therefore, it must be okay. I haven't gotten caught. And yet, God is the one who judges. God is the one who sees. God is well aware. David did everything he could do in his power to make sure no one saw No one was aware. And yet he looks and he says, it's against you. You are aware of my sins. You've seen them. Verse 4, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Did that one hit me this week as I was studying? That I don't often think about the fact that God is present. I know my theology says that God is everywhere. But I was doing, I was doing some, some pre-marriage counseling this week for one of our young couples who's getting married. And we were talking about the fact that no matter where you go in your home, God is with you. And I was like, wait a second, God is well aware. When David went in with Bathsheba, we don't think about this. But here is David committing adultery with Bathsheba and there is God standing and watching. And we look and say, oh God, you know, the, the despair the difficulty that is potentially on the face of God. My sin is ever in your sight. And so we need to understand that God does see. When you're at school, teens, and you're looking and saying, no one's aware, someone can text me the answers on the phone, and I can, you know, write it in. God sees. God sees when you're on the bus and you're, you're, you're mocking and you're ridiculing and you're bullying an individual. God's aware of that. He sees. And yet we, we dismiss the omniscience and omnipresence of God in our practical daily lives. But if we get that perspective, it's going to help us have victory over sin. 
It's, it's almost David gets to the point. Do you remember the old commercials, I've fallen and I can't get up? And, and Life Call, I think it's had done some really great things for individuals. But I think David's at this point where he finally realizes, wait, God, I've fallen. I can't get up on my own. I need your help. And that's where we need to get to when we are dealing and battling with spiritual uh, sin in our lives and where we're struggling with those difficulties to look and say, God, I've fallen. I can't get up on my own because my flesh is going to continually weigh me down. I need your help. I need your strength. Help me through this. And that's where David is, is going to drive drive toward. Now, he's, he's making this apology. And I, I wrote down there, define apology for a second. If you were going to say, all right, I, I want an apology, what are you going to write down? Maybe it's something like this, a written or a spoken expression of one's regret, your remorse, or your sorrow, or having uh, insulted, failed, injured, or wronged another person. There's, there's multiple definitions, but oftentimes the apology, we phrase it in the words, I'm sorry. And the question that I think we have to ask is, are apologies enough? And I would argue from a biblical perspective, no, they're not. And I think in our parenting, I think in our, our responsibility when we're dealing with individuals, we don't just, I don't just send my kid to say, I'm sorry. It is, you need to go ask for forgiveness and you need to explain why you are asking, please forgive me for hitting you. Not just looking and saying, I'm sorry, because I'm sorry indicates I got caught, I feel bad, it's just some remorse, it's some sorrow, I'm in trouble. But we need to talk about the idea of repentance. What is repentance? It is that deep sorrow. It is the compunction or the contrition for a past sin, the wrongdoing or something like that. It's a regret for that past action. And biblically, it becomes this conscious change in direction. As a result of the sorrow of your past sins. We talk about that it's a change in direction. Repentance has that idea of doing the 180. To look and say, I'm going this way. Wait, well, how did I get here? And we've all been there. Where we get to the point where like, how did I get to this point? How have I allowed myself to this depth of depravity? To look and say, God, I'm wrong. And I need to change my direction, and I need to start working at not doing that, but working on being godly, keeping my eyes focused on him, working in that direction, living a life that is according to God's word and his holy standard of living. That is my responsibility for repentance. Not just to look and say, oh, I'm sorry, my bad, I'll I'll continue going and living life, and I, I won't do that again. And I never turn my eyes away from that and turn my eyes back to God. But repentance says, I turn away from that and I turn to God. So as we talk about repentance, what do we learn about from David in Psalm 51? An extremely penitent psalm. What do do we learn? How can we we learn about repentance? Repentance requires an an awareness of our sin. And that's, we, we already read through those parts of the verses. I need to be aware of what I'm doing and that it is wrong and that it is sin and it is before God. And I need to address it and deal with it. Repentance accepts responsibility of our sin. It's not the Genesis 3, oh, the, the woman you gave me, Lord. Oh, the serpent, God. That was... It's looking and saying, I did this. I was wrong and I was wrong before God. It accepts the responsibility. Repentance is needed by all because sin springs from our, na- our nature, our sinful nature. Look in verse 5. 
He says, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is not saying that David was an illegitimate child, which some will interpret it as. That, oh, see, his mother, his mother must have done the exact same that David and Bathsheba did. And David's the Ill- illegitimate son of somebody because he was conceived in sin. It's not dealing with that. It's dealing with our sinful nature. That we, when we are conceived, we are sinners. And because we are sinners, we sin. We must recognize that we are going to need repentance. You don't have it figured out. I don't have it figured out. But we know this much. When we fall into sin, we need to turn back to God. We are all sinners from the beginning. And spiritual change is needed by all. Did you notice down in verse 13? And uh, some of you are well aware. Verse 13 is my, my life verse. And I'll explain why in a few moments here. But he says, Then will I teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted unto you. He looks and says, These individuals that are out there, they need spiritual change. They need to be taught. They need to grow. So spiritual change is necessary for all of us because sin is nature is, is embedded in our nature. It's who we are. But thankfully, we're not just sinners, but we are redeemed. If you're saved, you're a redeemed sinner. You are a forgiven sinner. You are a sinner who can have victory over sin because of the victory over death by Jesus Christ. And we have that ability. We have the hope to live righteously the way that God calls us to be. What else, what else do we learn? It's not something said simply to get out of trouble. Repentance is not something you simply, oh, I'm sorry, please get me out of trouble. Verses 6 and 7, he talks about, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. I'm sorry, he just deals with this external. He says, get to the heart of the matter. And in the hidden parts, you shall make me to know your wisdom, taking your truth and putting it into practice. He says, I want you to purge me with hyssop. I want you to take that um, and, and I shall be clean. He says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That idea of the purging with hyssop was, was the scrubbing that was involved. They often used hyssop was, was a, it wasn't something that just was around. You had to go collect it. It took time to get. They used it often in uh, sacrifices dealing with the blood. When they, uh, when they were putting blood over the doorpost, taking the hyssop and, and putting the blood over. There were multiple times where, where hyssop was used. And he talks about purging, scrubbing me clean removing the dirt that is in my life. He's not just saying, just make it look pretty and and move me forward. Repentance also does not negate the consequences or the discipline. Notice in verse 8, he's looking and saying that you make um, make me to hear joy and gladness. He's begging for that. That the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Some of you have broken bones. It doesn't heal overnight. There's difficulty. And even in some situations, you have lasting effects from broken bones. You have arthritis in that area. You have struggles. But he looks and he says, there's, there's a long-term struggle. He understands. David's well aware. He begs for deliverance from blood guiltiness. Verse 14. And uh, it's, it's an interesting, it's, it should be interesting. Those of you who've been in the class this whole time. How many times through all these psalms have we heard, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. And it was always begging for forgiveness or deliverance from people from the outside doing something to him. Now David has to look and say, wait a second, I did this to myself. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness. And David understood the blood guiltiness. It could be that Uriah's family is going to want to put exact revenge on him. It could be that somebody, he deserves the death penalty. 
And he's begging God to, to remove that from him, asking him to deliver him, to save him, to rescue him from that blood guiltiness that he desired. David understood very clearly at this point that the only path to forgiveness is confession of sin and an appeal to God's mercy and compassion. Forgiveness of sin does not just mean saying the right things so they don't enact discipline on me. Teens, it's not just covering up something so that nobody else knows about it and you think you've got away with it. It's looking and saying, I need to deal with this before God, and I need to beg his mercy and his compassion to be poured out upon my life. Now, this brings up that that idea often as well. If I can just ask for God's forgiveness and beg his mercy, then why not just go do what I want to do, turn around and say, I'm sorry, and then go do what I want to do and live in sin. And Paul deals with that. Romans chapter 6, should I continue in in, in sin that God's grace his mercy, his compassion, his kindness that I don't deserve, his grace should abound. He looks and says, God forbid. How can, how can those of us who are dead to sin continue to live in it? He highlights the responsibility you and I have to be living righteously, to do what is right, and to look and say, God, I failed. Have your mercy and your compassion on me, and I don't want to go back to this. I want to live this life, and I'm going to strive, and if I fall again, I'm going to pick back up and ask you, for forgiveness. I'm going to ask you to deliver me and to to pick me back up. And David begs for that confession. Why do we need this? Why do we need the repentance? And David is going to highlight because he says it directly affects and is related to your emotional well-being. Verse 80 says, make me hear joy and gladness. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, the joy that I once had. He says, sustain me from the ups and downs in life. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. Help me to have that strength to move forward when I'm down and when I'm up. But I need you, God, to sustain me. I'm going to fail. I'm going to struggle. I'm going to, I'm losing my joy right now. My bones are waxing old. I'm, I'm losing all of the joy that I once had as being your, your child and your king and your, your, your individual worker. I, I've lost all that. Restore that joy to me. You've been there. I've been there. We find ourselves wallowing in sin and there's no joy because we feel guilty. We struggle. So, so realize that, okay, I need to get right. I need to get repentance because it's going to impact my joy. It's going to impact my, my, my satisfaction in, in, the, in my life. We need to repentance because we will sin, sin again and we will need renewal. He says, create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me. He's like, I've fallen, I need you to restore me. And when I fall again, I'm going to need you to sustain me. And I need your steadfastness to keep me going forward in my life. And and God, I need that. He looks and he says also, we need repentance because it's directly related to your relationship with God. It's directly related to your relationship with God. He says, you will make me to know wisdom. When I am right with you, you'll make me to know wisdom. You, please don't cast me away. I don't want to be separated from you. I want that fellowship restored. A restored relationship is desired by David. And if you're as, as sinners, that should be what we are desiring to get closer to God, to draw nigh to him. He's already, he's there. He's not the one who's moving. We are the one who moves. We need to turn and come back and restore that fellowship. It's interesting, David says, verse 11, which is an important one for us to remember. He says, don't take your spirit from me. 
So is this, is this David talking about losing salvation or losing the spirit? He's not talking about his loss of salvation, but rather he's talking about the empowerment, the filling of the spirit to do his service as a king. Remember, pastors just dealt with this, the Old Testament use of the, of the, the spirit and how God uses it to enable, to, to uh, fill with power, to enact a service directly for God. As king, David was filled with the spirit. We saw that earlier in 1 Samuel 16, I believe it was, where he is anointed and it says he was filled with the spirit and then the spirit departed from Saul. And David understands that. That's in his, his framework. He's looking and saying, wait, Saul lost the spirit of God and the favor of God and the power to serve because he lived in sin. I don't want that. So he's begging God to say, please, don't take your hand of blessing off of me. Allow me to do my job. I think this is vitally important for us, especially in, and I'm going to get a little stereotypical for a second here. In in fundamental Baptist circles. David is an adulterous murderer who God has still allowed the Spirit of God to be upon his life. And he is still going to be used by God. Are there going to be consequences? Yes. But is he still able to be used by God? Absolutely. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't become stereotypical and look and say, oh, they've got the big letter D. They've been divorced. They can't do anything for God. Oh, they committed fornication and adultery. They can't be used by, oh, they, were, they got caught with tax evasion. They can't be used by God. Oh, they, we have to be very careful on that because God did not follow that pattern. God looks and says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And guess what? We can be used. You are not, if you're here today and you fall into one of those categories I just made, you're not a second-rate believer. Sure, you, you are a believer who fell into sin. And Lord willing, you have repented and you have set the direction back with your eyes focused on God. Sure, are there places in Scripture that, that God will prohibit certain aspects, you know, being in the office of a pastor or something like that? Yes, there are certain prohibitions that God has established. But we have to be very careful that we don't, in our minds, create first and second and third degree Christians because of sinful choices that are made. We are all sinners, and God sees sin as sin. And we need to, there are different consequences, and I understand that. But we need to, we need to be wise in that. What else do we need? Because everything we do, we need repentance because everything we do affects others, whether good or evil. He provides the opportunity to teach God's ways to others. Why is verse 13 for me, my life verse? Because I am a sick, disgusting, sinful, depraved human being. I know me. And I do not deserve to be there teaching, telling others about Jesus Christ. I don't deserve that position. And yet I look at this psalm and I love it. Because here is an adulterous murderer who went right with God. Can look and say, you can still use me. Then will I teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted unto you. I can't stand here and do this because of who I am. 
but because of the forgiveness that God gives to me on a daily basis. Because that I know if I'm working on being repentant and right with him, he can use me and he can use you. You cannot use the excuse, you don't know what I've done in my past, Pastor Art. You don't know where I've been. David looks and says, ha, 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 no. You get right with God and God can still and will use you. Let him use you because he wants to. You can teach others your way. It provides testimonies to see sinners converted. And I need to give you the rest because we need to finish. Uh, Because why do we need repentance? Because repentance delivers you from your own doing. And we talked about deliver me from the blood guiltiness. There'll be times no one else will know but you and God, but you can rest assured that he has forgiven. He has delivered you. Because praising God is possible again, even for the most heinous of sinners. Verses 14 and 15, he talks about my lips, uh, my tongue shall sing aloud your righteousness. My lips, open them up, Lord. My mouth will show forth your praise. You can come into this worship service right with God and exalt him even though you're a sinner and even though you're doing what's wrong. And if you're right with God and you repent, your lips, your tongues, your mouth can praise God again. Because of that deliverance. We need repentance because God desires character above all else. Godly character. Holy living. Righteous before him. He doesn't delight in burnt offerings. He's, David says, I would have given it to you. But rather, you want a broken spirit, a contrite heart. One that is humble and repentant before God. More acceptable, the Egyptian proverb says, and I liked it. More acceptable is the character of one upright of heart than the ox of an evildoer. God wants our heart before he wants our money. He wants our motives before the money. He wants our, 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 our righteousness before the extra things we do for him. We need it last because uh, through confession, sin gives way to God. David, David talks about, if you look at the first nine verses, the words for sin, 12 different times. The last nine verses, uh, you've got two times. You get God in the beginning one time, and by the end, it's six different times. Sin is, sin is giving way to God in this psalm because of repentance, because of forgiveness. Through confession, sin gives way to God. And when sin gives way to God, the moral fiber of believers are strengthened. The walls of Jerusalem will be built back up. The righteousness of Israel will be there. And then you will delight in our offerings, God, and you will enjoy that. So David is literally and literarily in this psalm emptied from sin and filled with his grace. And hopefully as we look at the psalm, we understand the situation. We will more importantly understand our sin is before God. He desires to forgive us, but we must turn from our sin, turn to God through repentance.